You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of Galatians. We're calling Legalism to Liberty. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Like many of you, I enjoy movies. And sometimes what happens to me is I get a favorite movie and I can forget how old that movie is. So as I was thinking through this movie this week, it shocked me that it's 21 years old. And I would ask you, does anybody else in this room or watching love Remember the Titans? I love it. That was year 2000. That is two decades ago, folks. So if you're not familiar with the story, it is a true story out of 1971, Virginia. And there were two schools that had been segregated. And so the quest of this was they were desegregating the schools and bringing two schools together. And in that movie, there's going to be two football teams worth of players that are trying to become one unified team. The story is about Coach Herman Boone, who in the movie is played by Denzel Washington, and he's trying to bring these teams together. In that, he does a two-week training camp where he takes them out of town, trying to build relationships. And if you saw the movie, you know all the things that he's trying to do to facilitate that. What finally is kind of happening, the teams are coming together, things are in a better place. And so they're toward the end of camp, they're lined up in their practice gear, they're in rows doing calisthenics. When Coach Boone yells out to them, what are you? And they responded, mobile, agile, hostile. And then Coach Boone shouts at him and goes, and what is pain? And they shout back, French bread. And then he yells back, what is fatigue? And somebody says, army clothes. And Coach Boone yells one last question, will you ever quit? And they say, no, we want some more, we want some more, we want some more. And that makes me laugh every time. And you know what? That works on a football field, doesn't it? That inspirational talk works on a football field. And if I were to see you out in the hallway and I said, how are you? And you said, I'm in pain. And I would have looked at you and said, and what is pain? I bet you not a one of you would have said French bread. (laughs) Oh, how are you? I'm fatigued. And what do we call that? Army clothes. No. See, that works on a football field. It captures our mind as an inspirational talk, and yet it does nothing in real life, does it? Because I think if we're real honest, we would say that we feel pain and we feel fatigued. It's been a rough go. It's been a rough go. We're fatigued from change. We're fatigued from mass. Students are fatigued from school. Parents are fatigued from whatever they're dealing with. We're fatigued from conflict. We're fatigued from politics. We're fatigued from sin. How many of us are fatigued from the impact of sin in the lives of those we love? We're fatigued from pain, and we're fatigued from suffering. Two weeks ago, we ended the message, I ended the message, with four things worth battling for. If you were here, I said, if I were to ask everybody in the room to come up with a list of 20 things that are worth battling for, I made the statement, I bet you no two lists in the room would be the same. I did say there would probably be some overlap. And we tied that into what Paul was saying to the Galatians, as there were probably at least four things that he was telling us in the book of Galatians that were worth battling for. Do you remember these? First off, the beautiful, simple truth of the gospel is we can't allow anybody to malign it. We can't allow anybody to confuse it or add things to it. That's worth battling for. 
Paul's epistle to the Galatian church is because somebody had messed up the gospel. The second battle I said it was worth fighting for was our own souls and our own spiritual growth, is we've got to take the steps necessary to grow spiritually. We've got to enter into that. Nobody can do that for you. The third battle I mentioned may sound like a conflict. I don't mean it as a conflict. The third battle is to battle for the souls closest to us. How do we enter into the battle for our loved ones, those closest to us, for them to battle for their own soul? How do we help them in that? How do we encourage them in that? How do we affirm them in that? How do we speak truth in their life? They have to own the spiritual growth plan, but we have an opportunity to enter into the battle with them. How are we doing? And then the fourth battle that I talked about was redeeming every opportunity to share the love of Christ with others. Now, in and of ourselves, if I were to ask you, how many of you feel pained and fatigued from those four battles? How many of us have felt the pain and fatigue of those battles and we've stepped out of the battle because the pain and the fatigue was so great? So I'm going to tell you something new that's coming out. This came out in a new study a couple of weeks ago from Arizona Christian University. As I say this, you're going to say, well, that's not really hard to believe. Here's what they found. Different generations think differently about different things. How many of you are surprised by that? How many of the folks that years ago on a Jamaica mission trip, we called them the youngers and the wisers? So you can decide which one you're in. How many of you wisers have thought, I just don't understand what the younger generation thinks? How many of you youngers have thought, I don't know why the wisers think that they know what's going on? So let me give you some examples of part of what they found, okay? And not all of them will shock you. I mean, and not all of them have the same emotional value, but stick with me. Number one, we'll try anything at least one time. Two-thirds out of millennials are like, I'm all in. Give me an opportunity. I've never tried it before. I'm going to go all in. I will try that. Our builders, only one out of every four. No, I'm going to stick with what I know. I'm going to do what I've tried. I don't need to try something new right now. I'm good. Anybody surprised? Not a huge emotional value in that. Let's step up the emotional attachment here. You ready? Treat others the way you want them to treat you. 90% of builders would agree with that statement. Less than 50% of millennials do. See, now we've got an emotional value, right? Why would you not treat me the way I'm treating you? Builders, I understand. Millennials will say, I'm going to treat you the way I want to treat you. I'm going to be the same. Regardless of how you treat me, I'm going to treat you the way that I'm going to treat everybody else. And they would look at it and say, this is authenticity. I'm not going to change based on how you treat me. I'm just going to be me. And so now we all of a sudden start seeing emotional values, don't we? How about this one? I don't know, I don't care, and I don't believe that God exists. Any of those three? 43% of millennials, only 28% of boomers would say that statement. I don't know if God exists. I don't care if God exists. I don't believe God exists. Now, church, as we talk about this and we look at the difference in that and we think about those millennials, do you see that the church has a calling upon us? Because this generation of millennials are made in the image of God. They are image bearers. God does not have a throwaway generation. There's not a generation that God is writing off to say, I don't care about this generation. This generation made in the image of God, was sought out by God. Jesus went to the cross to redeem this generation. And when we see that millennials are saying that, I guess maybe some people would want to raise their finger and tell them that they're wrong and chastise them. I would tell you that we as a church ought to step up and say we need to start changing about the way how we think about some things. 
we need to start having some different conversations because there's an entire generation that is struggling in this. And let's take it a step further. Here's a question. When they die, they will go to heaven only because they confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior. Now, remember the first thing that I said was worth battling for, the beautiful, simple truth of the gospel? The question, when they die, will they go to heaven for any reason other than having confessed their sin and trusted Christ? 49% of boomers agree, 26% of Gen X, 16% of millennials. See the problem? What was the question? When they die, they will go to heaven only, only on the sole basis of they confess their sins and trusted Christ. And this is where we are generationally. We've got work to do. And when I said there were four battles, and I think Paul is confronting all four of those battles in this epistle to the Galatian church, and I asked you to consider where you were, do you see that we had some work to do? Whether or not you're looking younger than you because it's your children, your adult children, your younger children, or the children that your adult children are raising, or because you're in the school system, or because you just interact with people, we got problems. And so Paul today gives us a battle plan. I invite you to open up your copy of Scripture because I think the battle just became maybe more real. If there's four battles we should be investing in, the beautiful, simple truth of the gospel, our own spiritual growth, the souls of those that we're closest to, and then redeeming every opportunity, those are the reality of the world that we're living in. How are we going to do it? Because I got to tell you, I read those stats and I become more pained and more fatigued just by reading them. And so the question before us is, how do we enter into this? And Paul is about to give us three exhortations that I think are the way that he's giving us a battle plan. How do we step into this? I invite you to follow along with me. I'm going to start reading Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1. There's three exhortations Uh, And we're going to look at the first one of them right now that goes through verse 6. I invite you to follow along with me. Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Here's the first one. Here's his first exhortation, resist. Resist, resist the pull to legalism. I think verse one really starts as a summary statement. He's entered into the third section of this letter and he begins with telling us that Christ has set us free. Why? For freedom. Why did he set you free? For you to enjoy freedom. Not for you to have to obey the Mosaic law, not for you to have to follow it, not for you to have the the tutor that was the law in your life, telling you all the ways that you did not measure up to righteousness. No, it's for freedom that he set you free. He set you free so you could be free. Now, even as we say it, that seems a little redundant, and yet we need it, right? Because everything in this life wants to pull us back. I think that's why he tells us to stand firm. Look, Christ died for you to have freedom. You have freedom. 
But you better stand firm. Why? Because nothing in this world is going to tell you you have freedom. Everything in this world is going to put you in the position to tell you how you should look, how you should dress, how you should speak, where you should spend your money, where you should spend your free time, what's okay, what music's okay, what movies are okay, how you should dress, how many times you have to go to church, which Bible verses you have to learn, what translation you should have to learn, over and over and over. And Paul's words are, stand firm in that freedom because somebody is always going to be there to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. You, they have a better plan for you than who they, th- who they think God ha- the plan God has for you. Always, always, always stand firm. If you were here last week, Joe used the phrase, our birthright as Christians is freedom. And it's that calling in our life that we get to live out. And just because somebody wants to enslave us doesn't mean they get to enslave us unless we allow them to. And then we become a slave not only to their system of beliefs for you, but to the person who gives you that system because they can change the system at any time. He's about to explain that. So let's talk. So that's the struggle. Here's where he goes from there. Avoid. You see that? Believers, verse 2 and 3, believers have to resist any call to reject the freedom that's offered by Christ. You got to look a certain way. You got to do something. Now, if you know the history of Israel, Israel had a sign. It was a sign that they were God's covenant people, and it was circumcision. And so what we have here is we have a group of Jewish believers who grew up in the system, and then they were set free from the system. And so they come into this church environment with all these Gentile believers, okay? They started here under the law. They were set free in Christ. They come to get to know some Gentile believers who are free in Christ, and now they're trying to take them back into what they were freed from. And so all of a sudden, they're telling these Jewish, these Gentile believers, you've got to follow the Mosaic law, particularly as it pertains to circumcision. You've got to go back to the system. What we know is this. If you break one aspect of the law, you broke the whole law. That's why James writes it this way. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, if you think back to school, maybe at some point you had one of those tests where you didn't do very well. And so you may have gotten a failing grade, but the teacher said, don't worry, everybody did poorly. I'm going to grade you on the curve. And you were like, yes. Here's the thing about the law. There's no curve. Matter of fact, it's worse than that. It's worse than the fact that there's no curve. If you break one aspect of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law because the law required perfection. And so it's not only there's no curve, that the fact is if you break one of them, you break it all. And all of a sudden what we see is we find ourselves in a position where it's all going wrong. And make no mistake, the way that this system works is this. Today the issue is circumcision. But if everybody had followed that, do we think that to keep the power, that group would have come up with another thing they would have had to do? okay, you have to do this. Okay, well, I did it. Okay, well, now you're going to have to do this. I did it. Okay, now you're going to do this. See, it never stops. It's a treadmill that you just keep on going and going and going. So he says, you got to avoid that. you got to avoid anybody that is going to speak into your life and offer you a chance to go back to legalism. It's not right. Why? Look at verse 4. You see that word sever? You're severed from Christ. What does that mean? Well, here's what it can't mean. It can't mean that you lose your salvation. 
It can't mean that you lose your eternal security because that can't happen. We have plenty of passages that make that abundantly clear that it can't mean that you're severed from your relationship with Christ. So what does it mean? Well, let's begin with the idea is that the word severed there has, it's a passive verb. It's not that you chose to do it to yourself. It was done to you. It's the moment that you bring legalism into your life, you have become severed from, not Christ, the power of walking with Christ. You get severed from that. And now all of a sudden that power, that spiritual empowerment that's there is gone. Because what we did was we looked at God, and in essence, when God said, I offer you the gift of grace, I offer you the gospel, the moment that we, even as believers, have trusted Christ, the moment we look at Christ and say, I want to thank you for that, but no thank you, I'm good. I'm going to earn my way if we get severed from the grace because we've said, I choose to do it on my own. I choose not to live, lean into grace right now. And guess what happens the moment that happens? We get severed from the spiritual empowerment that comes from living in grace. That's what we get severed from. It's not severed from him. You know the perfect example of this? If you're familiar with Romans 7 and Romans 8, if you're familiar with those passages, Romans 7 sounds like defeat. And Paul is going on and on in this. And if you read it, you're like, come on, Paul, get on with it. I get it. I mean, I understand what you're saying. Paul, you're kind of rolling over your words back and forth here. Because what Paul says is this. Look, I don't do what I want to do. Matter of fact, I do just the opposite. What I want to do, I don't do. What I do, I didn't want to do, but I did it anyway. And he just goes back and forth in that. Now, you and I can say, Paul, that's not great writing, but show me one believer who hasn't been there. And what we see in Romans 7 is we see Paul's frustration, we see his anger, we see his heartbreak, we see his defeat. And then he comes to the end of Romans 7 and he asks this question, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I got to tell you, the condemnation in this verse is Paul to himself, it's self-condemnation. Wretched man that I am. He's calling himself wretched. That's the condemnation of this verse. But you know the really interesting thing about Romans 7? And liberal theologians, I think, completely missed the boat. They say that Paul didn't come to faith until Romans 8, 1. They think that Paul wrote Romans 1 through 7 as an unbeliever. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now what? No condemnation. What's the condemnation? It's self-condemnation. Wretched man that I am. But you know the key to Romans 7? There is zero mentions of the Holy Spirit. Zero. You want to know what the Christian life looks like when you get severed because we welcome legalism and behavioralism into our life? You want to know what happens when we get severed? We, excuse me, when we get severed, we become a Roman 7 Christian. It doesn't mean you lost your salvation. It means you only know defeat and spiritual weakness because you can't quit doing what your flesh is calling you to do because you're not fueling it with the Holy Spirit. Because at the end of Romans 7, do you catch the question? Who? Who can deliver me? Not what, not what behavior, not what practice, not which Bible verse or how many times do I go to church. He says, I need a who because the what isn't working. So he moves into it and says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. How? In Christ Jesus. Because you were set free in Christ Jesus. And now all of a sudden, we can see this. Like most of you, maybe there's somebody in here that doesn't have one of these. Bless you if you don't, but some of us do. 
When I have a long day where I'm away from power, I think if I'm at a a theme park or if we're outside or we're doing something, maybe we're at a game or we're tailgating or something, you know my fear is that my battery's going to die. And I'm going to be like, I got a phone with no power. What good is that? Paperweight? I mean, seriously, what are you going to do with a phone that has no power? And I'm so afraid of that, I bought one of these cases that has a battery on the back of it. So I've got two full batteries everywhere I go. You know, I really think that Romans 7 is the Christian that's trying to be a phone without any battery power because you're living, you're, you're living in a way that you weren't created. You were created to have power, and that power, Romans 8. You follow Romans 8, all of a sudden, what we see is all those Romans 7's experiences. I don't do what I want to do. I do the very things I don't want to do. You know what else is in Romans 8? God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Even the Roman sevens, yes, even the Roman sevens, God has the capacity to make something great out of those. Romans 8, the end of the chapter, what can separate you from the love of God? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Even Roman seven experiences, even Roman seven experiences. That's why you are not severed from Christ, you're severed from the power. And you want to talk about the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8? Romans 7 has zero mentions of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 has 21 mentions of the Holy Spirit. That's why we've got to figure out why Paul says to them, look, you've got to resist the call to legalism. Matter of fact, it's going to be a battle because you better stand firm because everybody's going to try to take you away from it. So you better avoid those people who come into your life. Why? Because if you allow that into your system of belief and into your faith, you're starting to sever yourself from the gospel of grace, not from Christ, but from the spiritual empowerment that comes from leaning into his grace. Everything begins to change. How important is grace to Paul? Well, the word grace appears 155 times in the New Testament. Paul uses 100 of them. You think that's unusual? He came out of the Mosaic law. He appreciated and understood grace far more than the Gentile world would have ever. That's Paul. That's what he offers us. Look down, because once we've severed, matter of fact, we don't want to be severed. Matter of fact, he offers us a different word. Did you see it there in verse uh, five? Hope, hope. The word is eagerly await. That word appears seven times in the New Testament, and it's always used in reference to believers who are looking forward to what's coming. Because so many of us know Romans 7 experiences. How do we live in a Romans 7's experience when we're called to live in a Romans 8, but we fall into those Romans 7's experiences so much and the word is we eagerly await. We start each day and say, Lord, I don't have, I'm fatigued, I'm pained, I don't have what it takes for today, but I know that today could be the day that the clouds, the clouds scroll back and I see you. And the opportunity that I will see my Savior face to face one day is enough to keep me moving forward. And that's the hope. And only believers have that. But you know what? It requires a constant encouragement from the Holy Spirit. It requires that level of commitment to him. And if we have that level of commitment, guess what? We live in a Romans 8 world where all of a sudden we can say, you know what? I wish I could do it over. I can't, but you know what? I'm trusting that God causes all things to work together. Even Romans 7, even Romans 7, he's going to work this into something good. And I'm trusting in it because nothing can separate me from the love of God. That's what Paul's talking about here as he does it. Because he moves from there and says, so we've got this, but he said, here's the reality. You ready? Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You know what he would say? I think Paul would say? You want to demonstrate your spiritual maturity? Love people. 
love people. Spiritual maturity is not demonstrated by memorizing all of the books of the Bible. It's not, it's not demonstrated or manifested because you can quote more scripture or you can pray really long prayers and you can t- quote tons of scripture in your prayers or you can use really big words in your prayers. It's not that you've memorized more Bible verses, you've done more Bible study books than anybody else. No, it's that you love people well. That's the measure. Do you love people well? And we're like, hey, well, I'm pretty good at this. Uh, I, I go to church twice a week. And of course, you know what? We picked a system that we can win at, right? Paul said, uh-uh. If you're going to love the Lord, it needs to change your heart. So let me just give you a, a quiz. You going to see a quiz? Here we go. Now, I'm going to ask you to grade yourself, and nobody's going to have to give an answer, but if y'all want to talk about it at lunch with whoever you lunch with today, knock yourself out. Here we go. You ready? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Okay, so there's six things there. Just ask yourself, how are you doing so far on six? Remember, the law required perfection. How are you doing? There's six of them there. Well, we're not done. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Still doing okay? And we're like, I don't like this test. Ask me if I went to church every Sunday last year. Just 80% of the Sundays. Just That's a B, right? And what happens is we start finding ways to create a system we're good at. Okay, let's keep going. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Anybody else having trouble finding truth these days outside of Scripture? It's hard. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all, all things, endures all things. Anybody get a perfect score? Because we're over here trying to figure out how many times we went to church last year so we know if we're better. Because in this system of legalism, we don't even care if we're the best. We just can't afford to be the worst. And so we're looking, I'm like, well, I'm not as bad as him. I mean, I'm not him or her, but at least I'm not him or her. And we settle into this thing. We're like, on the curve, I'm pretty good. And yet, isn't it interesting that the spiritual maturity measure that Scripture gives us is how do you love people? Because until we start engaging our hearts and minds and transformation takes over in a worship environment, we will never be who God's calling us to be. And we better ask some questions as we talk about those Gen X statistics and those millennial statistics. How are we loving Gen X and millennials? Because those stats are staggering. The good news is this. The gospel always takes sinners who are plagued by problems with the flesh and brings them into a transformational relationship that because we have worshiped the Lord, he changes our hearts, and then with our changed hearts, we go and love people well. Because that whole 1 Corinthians 13 is the way that Christ loves us. And the idea is that as we worship, we will begin to love other people the way that he loves us. Because what Paul knew, coming out of that system of having been a religious leader in Israel, as he knew what the law couldn't do, Now, if you followed along, let me give you a little bit of a scorecard about what Paul has said. One is, he's told us that the law cannot produce justification. That's the theological word that talks about our coming to faith and entering into the family of God. He's already said the law can't do that. Where did he say it? 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So the law can't bring us into the family, okay? But the law also cannot produce glorification, that which is at the end of our life when we die and we get ushered into heaven. The law can't do that. That's the passage we just looked at, Galatians 5.5. By faith, ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The fact that we've come to faith, the law doesn't create that in us. I eagerly await. No, we just are tired with the law. And it talks about our failure. 
So what we see is the law can't bring us into the family of God, and the law can't eventually bring us home, but what about today? Well, the law can't produce sanctification either. That's what we just read. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working itself out through love. The law cannot bring us into the family of God. It cannot bring us home, and it does nothing for us in between. Why are we so obsessed with legalism? It can't do anything that we want to do. I got to tell you, I don't know what y'all think about when you exercise. I'll tell you what I was thinking about. I'm on the elliptical for an hour, and my brain is on Galatians. I'm sure that's what y'all all think through on the train or two, right? And so as I'm on it, I'm thinking every week we preach, and every week Paul just keeps coming back to the gospel. Why is that? And so I'm going back and forth through it, and I'm thinking, well, that's because we keep going back to legalism, and that's why. But then God brought this passage to mind. So this is Matthew 27. This is Christ on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is at the very end of his life. Another account tells us that he said that it is finished. We know all the rest from the other gospels. But this is at the end of his life. He didn't just in the nick of time. No, it was with a loud voice. He paid the penalty for our sin. We were set free from that. And all of a sudden he yielded his spirit and went up and joined the father. Now, here's where it got really interesting to me. When we follow this, next verse, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple was God's house of worship in the Old Testament where Israel went to worship. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. The high priest was the only one who could go in there, and it was he could only go in there once a year. And so all of a sudden, you had nobody that had access to the very presence of God. There was a veil that separated everybody else. Jesus Christ on the cross When he died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. You want to talk about a strange moment. If you were in the temple, the moment he yielded his spirit, the the curtain ripped in half. Why is it significant from top to bottom? Because God himself is who tore it. Now, if our behavioralism or legalism could tear the veil, we would all have to have our own veil. The fact is there was only one person who was capable of tearing the veil, and it was Jesus Christ as he was on the cross. And it was his death. It wasn't because of a behavior. It was because he was the righteous sacrifice for us. And he died in our place. All of a sudden, the veil gets ripped. What else happened? The earth shook and the rocks were split. Everybody felt that. None of us have ever died and had the veil split. None of us have ever died and created an earthquake. Well, and truthfully, none of us in here have ever died at all. But that just occurred to me. But when you die, that probably isn't going to happen either passage goes on. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs of his resurrection, excuse me, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Let me tell you, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 talks about Christ being the firstborn among the dead. I think that when Christ yielded his spirit and went to heaven, I think the veil tore. I think there was an earthquake. I think I think that tombs opened and rocks shattered. But because Christ is the firstborn of the dead, I don't think that those people emptied the tomb until after Christ did. But can you imagine that Sunday? Not only you have Jesus walking out of the tomb on Sunday morning, then you have a whole bunch of other dead saints walking out of the tomb like, we weren't counting on you for lunch day kind of thing. Like, how does this happen? Let me tell you, one person and only one person in all of creation, when he died, tore the veil draining us access to the Father that created an earthquake at the momentous occasion that it was and raised other people from the dead. 
And that is the God we serve. And that's the God that today is still keeping the veil torn open, which is why we have access to God the Father, because the veil is torn because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. No behavioralism or legalism does that. Otherwise, there was a way apart from Christ for salvation to happen. It's not possible. What a moment that must have been. We've got to resist. You ready for the second one? Here's the second one. We've got to recognize. Look down with me, if you would, at verse 7. You were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You're going to have to recognize some things. You've got enemies. How many of us are living our Christian life as though we don't have any enemies? Like we're just making it through life. We're good. Paul asked a rhetorical question, who's leading you astray? They know who's leading them astray. It's a rhetorical question. They know exactly who it is. But let me ask you this. If you have ever thought about doubting Thomas, and you're like, man, what a bummer of a nickname, that that's the adjective attached to your name. Or we get denying Peter. I mean, that's kind of a hard nickname as well. Both of those are better than this next one. Look at what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. Now, I bring that up because I don't know how many of us would say our spiritual life looks like warfare, but if we're going to stand firm, there's probably a war going on that we're not paying very much attention to. And if we're paying attention to it, I think that's why Paul says good warfare. But look at where he goes. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among who are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And if somewhere you and I are thinking, well, I mean, I, I, I listen to this person, I listen to this podcast, I read this author, I got a great devotional book, I will never shipwreck my faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander were working with Paul, who wrote more than half the New Testament, and they shipwrecked their faith. I think we need to ask a different question. If it's at all possible for us to shipwreck our faith, where are we vulnerable to shipwrecking our faith? Because we will go off track in time. They're examples of it. This is 1 Timothy 1, where he says they've shipwrecked their faith. Well, by 2 Timothy 2, their talk spreads like gangrene. It's not only that they shipwrecked their faith, they had a negative impact on everybody around them because their half-truths and lies are becoming poison to everybody around them. See why we need to pay attention? We've got enemies, and they may not even intend to be our enemies. They may be well-intentioned, good people that have bought into lies, and the moment they start offering you half-truths and lies and legalism, we better separate ourselves from them and avoid them, or we are going to find ourselves being severed from the power of Christ, and then we're back in Romans 7. See how that all is going to work? He goes through and says, look, it's like a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. I will tell you, I'm not much of a baker, but I, I know this, because I Googled it. Uh, two cups of water, six cups of flour is eight cups but you still don't have bread until you add in a little teaspoon, a scant, I don't even know what that is, a scant teaspoon of yeast, two cups of water, six cups of flour, and a scant teaspoon, and that flour takes over the whole loaf of bread. You know why we use unleavened bread for communion? It's because leaven, yeast, is always seen in the Scriptures as being an illustration for sin. And so it just takes one sin to contaminate the whole loaf, which is why the law was past fail. You couldn't break any law and not break the law. It was that way. That's why we use unleavened bread, because Christ is our acceptable sacrifice, because there was no sin in him. And he says, we can't allow any of it. 
I think if you were to say, how much sin can I let in my life? How much legalism can I let in? I think Paul's answer would be, how comfortable are you being severed from the strength of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the gospel of God? And we're like, well, that was a dumb question for me to ask. Paul would say it is. You don't let any leaven in. You stay true to it at all times. You better resist. You better recognize. Look at the third one. We better remain fixed on the gospel. Paul writes this, verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Get a feel for how strongly Paul feels? One, we, we remain with the Lord. Legalists are always going to try to corral you and take away your freedom. you got to fight against it. And our question is, well, how do we respond to those people? We don't want to just avoid them, right? I mean, that's kind of harsh. I think you get a chance to go to them and say, hey, I want to offer you some truth that I see in Scripture. We need to reconcile this. But other than that, if they remain on that path, you step away. Paul stepped away from Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander. He stepped away from them. How do we step away from them? Because God's Word says, I'm going to judge them. Paul writes, God's going to judge them. That's not your job. You offer them truth. You try to bring them back in. If they stay on that path, you let them go. It's not your job. You let them go. I think that's the first one. Look at the second one, verse 11. Believers must remain focused on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul says, you're attacking me because I'm not preaching a system of slavery? That's why you're attacking me? Because I'm offering you freedom. I'm offering you the gospel. And you're mad at that. I think Paul would say this. If the cross is a stumbling block, how can it be a stumbling block? For two reasons. There's only one of two reasons why it could be. Number one is your idea of Messiah was a conquering military hero, and you don't like the fact that Jesus was crucified because you don't even understand why you needed a savior. Your idea of Messiah was a war hero, and he's not that. That's one reason. The other reason would be because you don't like the fact that you are not in control of your own salvation. That's it. Either you don't like him crucified or you don't like the fact that you're helpless. One of the two. But let me make it clear. My gospel is that you were helpless, but God loved you and redeemed you and brought you back. That's the gospel. And so through all of this, if you feel like you are outside and you can't do a good enough, enough good works to get into the Holy of Holies, Amen. Every Christian in this room, every Christian watching has come to the same place. I can't do enough. That's why Christ ripped the veil, so that you and I could enter in, not on the basis of who we are or what we did, but who he is and what he did on the cross. That's where salvation comes. That's the offer to you and me. The law couldn't bring justification. It couldn't bring glorification. It can't bring sanctification. It doesn't help me get in. It doesn't help me finish well, and it can't do anything for me now. That's the gospel message which is why when Paul gets to the end of this and he says in verse 12, and it's really colorful language, and I will call attention to the fact that, yes, the whole topic this far has been tied specifically to circumcision, but you see what he says. In this system, legalism is poison. It will poison you out and sever you from the power, the spiritual empowerment that you and I need from the Holy Spirit to live our Christian life. And Paul says, I'm sick and tired of watching this poison infiltrate the church. We need this message today as much as the Galatian church needed it. 
I'm sick and tired of watching this happen because you're killing believers under a rule of law that enslaves them and it was never intended to do it. It can't do that. And so Paul goes a step further and he says, you know what? If you were to actually castrate yourself, you would not be able to reproduce any more of your ilk. If we just did that, fine. This generational poison would end with you. The other thing that's interesting is there were several cults an occult, by definition, is any path, anything that offers a path to salvation apart from Jesus Christ on the cross. So there were cults of the days where they practiced castration as an aesthetic that they were trying to avoid any fleshly temptation or desire. And so they said that was an act of worship to do it. Now Paul all of a sudden says, matter of fact, if that's what you want, one, I don't want you to ever reproduce more of your kind. Number two, you're no different than the pagan priests that push this on their thing. And that clearly is a cult. So that's salvation apart. But if you go back to Deuteronomy 23, is that nobody that had been castrated was allowed in the presence of the congregation of God's people. Paul is so mad right now. He said, if that's what you want to do, if you're going to stay on that path, that broken path, you stay on that path. And you know what? That's just fine with me. Because I can't bring you back. You walked away from God, and I just assume you not reproduce anybody else of your kind. You're no different than the pagan priest. And matter of fact, I don't even want you in the household of God, Deuteronomy 23. You hear how strong he is? And we're over here saying, I mean, it's not really the way I think about it. See how dangerous it comes? That's why God says, avoid. Get outside. So there's your three. You get them. You better resist. Here's our battle plan. Resist, recognize, and remain. That's it. Because you know what? We are all fatigued. We are all pained. And none of us want to throw back French bread and army clothes. It's too much at stake. And some of us are in here saying, I don't know that I have enough, enough in me to make it through today. Any system that doesn't focus on the gospel and resisting and recognizing and remaining is going to leave you pained and fatigued. That's all it can do. That's all that system can do. And what I would tell you is Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.